Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope you enjoy today's show. Today's podcast is brought to you by NFP Structured Settlements. NFP Structured Settlements is pleased to be a diamond sponsor for the Ohio Association for Justice for the past 10 years. NFP is your trusted advisor and partner in all aspects of case settlement planning, including structured settlements and trust services. For more information, visit nfpstructures.com. NFP, passionate advocates, proven approach. Hello, I'm your host, Sean Harris, and this is episode 52 of Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Today is August 21st, and I'm here with our guest, Hans Nilges from Massillon. Hans, thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thank you very much. Although, perhaps uh, given our topic today, I was joking that we should rename, instead of Civilly Speaking, it should be Statistically Speaking. (laughs) And for our listeners, our topic today is Decision Theory and Evidence-Based Legal Decision-Making. That's a mouthful. Uh, What does that mean? Well, sure. So I, I guess I, 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 when I proposed the title, I, I really should have been kind of the case for evidence-based uh, legal decision-making. It's, it's not that this is something that's been figured out and can just be rolled out. The, I guess what I'm trying to do is just start or maybe a join, if I'm not aware of one that already exists, a dialogue in our profession that it's something that we should be moving to. It's also something that I'll be talking about further at our OAJ Winter Convention. And But to answer your question, what is it that I'm talking about? I believe that, that ours is really the last of the great professions that still relies nearly entirely on our individual kind of expert evaluations rather than empirical studies, data, algorithms, things like that, that you know, all the business world has been using, Wall Street's been using it forever, even the medical profession has moved towards it in the you know, 80s and 90s through the evidence-based medicine kind of revolution that took place. And, you know, for well, the way we take a look and, and evaluate a case, you know, we're going to take into account our, our past experiences with the type of a case, our past experience with opposing counsel or the defendant, the cases that we find and read take into account our own abilities, you know, our opinion about how a jury, uh, jury pool or a judge is, is going to, to rule anecdotes from colleagues, and really our gut. And, and that's what it all comes down to when you, when you take all that and you amalgamate it. That's really what you're doing is you're just basing it on, on what your gut reaction is that's, uh, you know, driven by your experiences. And then we make our decision based on, uh, on that. And, and that's the way, you know, things were done, for example, in medicine for, for a lot of times, for most of, you know, until the evidence-based, you know, decision-making in, in the medical field started coming around. So there's been a lot of kind of interesting work in this, in, in this field of decision-making and, you know, decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. And that's the world where we live every day, you know, whether we're making a decision you know, uh, as to a case we take, a decision as to whether or not we settle or, or take, a tri- uh, take a case to trial. There's been a lot of uh, 
interesting research in, in this decision-making space. So not to filibuster, but uh, you know, going along with that, give you an example uh, of some of the research. In, in an interesting kind of introduction to the topic is, is uh, Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a bestseller and a, a really interesting uh, book that, that you know, kind of got me started thinking about this. And, you know, he has tons of white papers on it, and, and his colleague, Amos Tversky, it's really interesting stuff. But, you know, pulling a, a couple examples from that book, uh, he discusses a study where 284 people were experts that made their living, you know, on commenting and, you know, on political economic trends, you know, uh, pundits that we see on TV, gathered together 80,000 predictions from those people. And, you know, asked to rate the probabilities of different events. And the reality is that they, they, they failed pretty miserably. In fact, a monkey on a dartboard would have done better. Huh. So I, I guess, uh, you know, that is a similar way that we're making our decisions. Is, is again, based on our own expertise and research and, and understanding of a topic. But studies show when you're basing it just on that, you know, it can be, it can be deeply flawed. Is it, is it too simple to say that decision theory attempts to make what was otherwise subjective more objective? Yeah, yeah, so that, that's exactly kind of the goal, right? So w when we're talking about, again, you know, what we're doing, the, the, the world we live in, is we're making uh, decisions under uncertainty. We don't know how a judge is going to rule. We don't know whether or not a case is going to turn out well or not. We're always having to make predictions. And the, the reality is that predictions, it's never going to be possible. The world's too complex to be able to, you know, no algorithm, computer science program is going to ever be able to you know, be 100% correct. The idea is that if you're eliminating biases and you're kind of confronting the fact that uh, your own limitations on being able to make those predictions, that you'll be able to improve your decisions. So one way is, you know, incorporating statistics and in, in, into, into your decision-making. Another study, they had 14 psychologists and they were asked to make predictions about how students would do in school for that year. And, you know, the psychologist went and interviewed people, you know, the students. They looked at their whole history of grades, several aptitude tests, read a personal statement by them. And then they made their clinical predictions about how the, the, the people would do, how would they perform. In, in school for the year. And, and, and they ran another test concurrent with that where it was a statistical pre uh, prediction that was based just on grades and prior grades and one aptitude test. And the statistical model beat the psychologist 11 out of 14 times. So it just kind of goes to the, the, to the, drives home the point that Experts necessarily aren't the best people to be making predictions about how things are going to turn out. And, and those studies, uh, you know, have been picked up on, and the same results has 
been consistently shown to be true in, in all sorts of things from predicting all sorts of different, you know, successive medical procedures, survival rates, and things like that. What types of data or data points would you, in a perfect world, want to have for lawyers in our profession to be able to use this type of decision theory? That is, I, I will say, probably the data that is available, right? So I know we'll get to the, to the perfect world, but the data that's available now is, is that's, that's the big impediment, I think, to, to the legal profession being able to really fully move into, the, uh, into this world, so to speak, because as you know, our settlement information, most things are, are going to be de, uh, determined by a settlement, and most of those settlements are going to be wrapped up in a confidentiality agreement or lawyers just aren't sharing the information. And first of all, getting a data pool is, is the first big challenge, right? We need to figure out a way as a profession to be able to share that information while protecting you know, attorney-client privilege, while respecting any kind of confidentiality agreements or orders to seal cases, you know, addressing, you know, we're all competitors, uh, the you know overcoming the reluctance reluctance to share uh, information that that people may feel is competitive, but it, you know so the first thing we need to do is figure out a way to get the data pool right. Uh, it's going to take a lot of cooperation, and I'll tell you that insurance companies already do this. You know, big giant insurance companies who represent you know have millions and millions of claims uh, a year already have this information, they're using it against us, quite frankly. They're able to do the predictive modeling and make sure that they're making the right decisions in their cases, well, by using the data. And, you know, it's, it, and I think that our profession gets put at a disadvantage because of that by big companies and insurance companies. So what data points? I think it's really infinite, Sean. I mean, everything that, uh, you know, that, that goes into evaluating a case. Take it by case type. You know, how much is the average auto accident case under all of these, you know, different factors? How, how, what's the average award? You could get down to, you know, what do juries do in Akron, Ohio, federal courts? You know, Judge Adams always tells us how conservative his juries are. But, you know, what's the truth? And in what types of cases? Are they conservative in criminal matters, but not certain types of civil matters? These are all things that if we had those, the, that information, we could really make better decisions rather than just saying, oh, I asked, you know, Joe Smith, and he had a jury trial there in front of Judge Adams, and it didn't work out so well, just as, a, you know, an example. So the more data we have, the, the better the better choices we'll be able to make and decisions we'll be able to make for our clients. But again, the first step is cooperating and getting that data pool. Well, and that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way when you say that we know the insurance companies are collecting this data. I mean, everybody's, at least in the personal injury context, everybody's heard about Colossus and these right. you know programs that aggregate data and spit out an answer. Now, of course, on, on their side, 
they tend to be hamstrung by those numbers. But I think what you're suggesting is the data, not that it hamstrings us, but it gives us, it's a better predictor. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It it ensures that we're making the right decisions for our our clients. So this goes into uh, another part of of this. And and it's a very interesting, if people start reading on it, it's really interesting because there's so many biases and flawed heuristics and everything people use in making the decisions. But going to making better decisions and using the data to make sure that we, we are making better decisions, also studies have shown that under prospect theory, people will tend to, when they have a bird in hand, take less than you know, the expected value of, of the actual case when you take into you know, probabilities of risk or loss. And I think that you know, the fact that our, our general human instinct is to you know, adopt that bird in hand view of, I'm going to take the bird in hand, even though when I actually look at the risk involved, it's not the right decision to make. If we have that data to be able to say, hey, this is what the actual you know, probabilities of success are, and you can run your expected value, you'll make sure that you're not settling for less than a case is worth. And if you can run a, a reliable expected value calculation, then you'll make sure, one, you're not selling out cases, and on the other hand, you can have confidence that your decisions, if it's exceeding expected value or meeting it, that it's a good, solid decision. And it, it's something that we have started incorporating into our practice here. Of course, the limit on it is that we have to pick all subjective probabilities. We vet them. We argue about them. What are the subjective probabilities? Because guess what? We don't have the data to be able to know what the true answers are, right? But, you know, in, in we use a program called Triage Pro, where we run a decision tree model and compound all of the, the risk probabilities and come up with an expected value. And that is, in my opinion, helping us make better decisions when it comes to settlement because, one, we're not taking less than what our expected value is, that's for sure. And on the other hand, we're not being stupid, hopefully. And, and pushing a case uh, farther than it, than it should go at this point. You know, if the, if the settlement far exceeds expected value, why not settle it? I, I want to follow up on something you said there. You talked about a decision tree yeah. app. T- tell us about th- that again and, and how you use it. Sure. It, uh, it's, it's a program. And, and again, you know, because it, it, it's actually primarily used in the medical profession for these reasons, because they are trying to make evidence-based decisions, but there are some law firms that started using it in the, in the legal context. And what you do is you map out all of the different kind of pinch points in your case. You know, in, in my world, uh, as a FLSA, you know, collective and class action lawyer, those are typically first, is my case going to get conditionally certified? If so, you know, what's the probability of that? Do I have a Rule 23 allegation? What's the probability of me getting that certified? Then what's the risk of summary judgment versus uh, liquidated damages? And, and, you know, ultimately, or excuse me, summary judgment or decertification, what's my chances of getting liquidated damages? What's my chances of proving willfulness? 
And you take all of these things and you assign probabilities through the, throughout the tree, and then you compound all those risk levels, and then you come up with an expected value calculation that's and, and the numbers that you plug in, obviously, are your damages, but those are easily objective, right? I mean, you just, you know, a case is worth what it's worth, at least in my world. I'll say in, in personal injury, probably punitive damages and compensatory damages, right, for emotional distress and, and so on, those are a lot more subjective. And that's where having data of what juries are actually awarding in terms of punitive damages and compensatory damages would be extremely valuable, right? Because we're still just making kind of gut predictions. So. Yeah. You know, that's funny. I, I One of my concerns when we go to uh, CLE seminars, and uh, even though OAJ has a policy that speakers aren't supposed to share verdicts, they do from time to time. And I'm always concerned about that because it's not representative. It's one Correct. small piece of data, and you can't necessarily extrapolate from that. And and by the way, they're they're self-selecting their the good results, and they're not telling you all the the bad results. That's right. So I mean, look at all of our websites, right? We all have our big verdicts on there or settlements, right? But nobody has the you know the one I you know the the case you settle for twenty five hundred dollars, you know, and you litigated it for nine months, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, but those happen, unfortunately, right? And so that is. That, that is a danger. You know, the law of small numbers is extremely dangerous. If you're just looking at a, you know, a, a very unrepresentative small population and you're going to say, this is what I'm going to base my decisions on what I think I'm going to win a trial on, that's extremely dangerous. I agree with that. And, you know, unfortunately, we hear that from, you know, our people who are potential clients or our clients, yeah. they all read the, the million-dollar verdicts and, you know, in my world, I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, you made $10 an hour part-time. It's going to take a lot of, lot of years of front pay to get you to a million dollars, you know, because people's views and perceptions do get skewed. So, yeah, having all the data, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is, is something that we as a profession on the, on the plaintiff's side need to start sharing with each other. Yeah, bad data is still valuable data. It, it's it's probably yeah absolutely because we could all find out how many million dollar settlements people have by looking on their website. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right. But the average stuff, you know, and and uh, you know the 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 bad results, the the ones that you know, what if what if we found you know we did the study and we find out that certain type of cases that everybody poo poos, you know, is ones not worth taking. Are actually really valuable when you when you when you look at it from a context of um, time from signing up to the client to time to getting the payment, you know the amount of hours that you have into it, the availability of that type of claim, the amount of money you're getting. It could turn into you know we might be leaving a lot of money on the table or other cases that you know there's a general perception that it's highly valuable, right? But when you really run the numbers, it looks like you know, it's, it actually doesn't have the same kind of punch that you think it does. I mean, it's all really valuable information that we should be sharing with each other, and everybody can use it. So, Well, and I suppose that begs the question, then, how do we collect this data? Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the, that's the question. I mean, I, the only general answer I have is that an organization like ours 
is is the place to start, and it's just going to take voluntary participation by by members willing to kind of step up and take part of that process. And I, it, it's not an uncomplicated thing to do, but I guess the first step uh, on the down the road is getting agreement, getting consensus that this is the right thing to do, and next step trying to figure out how to overcome the, the thousand obstacles that will be to get to the end point, which is the, the actionable data. But, I mean, I think OAJ in particular is a great place to start because we have collectively the, the big data that we need, but individually we don't. So. Well, Hans, thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. This is fascinating stuff. John, thank you very much for letting me uh, kind of get on my soapbox about this. It's it's a fun topic for me, but I do think that it is moving towards this evidence-based legal decision-making. That is where we need to go. I think we're lagging far behind all of the other great professions, and, and we need to catch up. Yeah, and uh, for our listeners out there, if you like our show and want to learn more, check out civillyspeaking.com, and please leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you here on the next episode of Civilly Speaking.